Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the As a Woman podcast. Today is one of my favorite episodes. This is where I am answering some of your questions that you have called and left on the voicemail. I love being able to connect with you guys. I can't believe we are on our fifth year of this podcast and who knew there was so much content to cover. I mean, seriously, I love educating you and talking about your body and your fertility. And I'm just so thankful for every one of you. A few things before we get started. If you would like to call and leave your own voicemail, I do these episodes every quarter or so where we will go through and answer your questions. And I absolutely love hearing from you. So call the voicemail 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. Also, Fertility in the News, which is a segment I have loved doing, has now been transitioned to the weekly newsletter. So if you would like to sign up, it's nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. You'll get updates, recipes, my favorites. I'll be answering questions there, and we are covering a news topic every week, so follow along. All right, friends. Well, without further ado, let's dive in to your questions. Hi, uh, Natalie. I had a quick question. I have asked a couple of doctors about whether or not chlamydia might cause any sort of fertility issues, and in my experience, I've found a lot of doctors have sort of downplayed whether or not there's actually a chance of blocked fallopian tubes. And I've watched a number of your videos, and I know that you've really stressed that as a potential cause, um, a high-risk thing that you should consider. And I was wondering if you had any background on why certain doctors might not think that that's the case and I guess what what the real facts is. Thank you for all you do. Bye. All right. This is a great question, and I'm not sure why anybody would downplay this, to be honest. Number one, chlamydia has an extremely high prevalence. There are typically over 130 million annual infections worldwide. It impacts women much more than men because of how our genital tract, the anatomy of it. And to make matters worse, and probably why a lot of chlamydia is really problematic, is up to 70% of infections are asymptomatic. Therefore, the infection is brewing and causing inflammatory damage such as scarring without you ever potentially knowing. So the consequences of chlamydia can be pelvic inflammatory disease, which is where a lower genital tract infection, think cervical infection, vaginal infection, migrates through the uterus and infects the uterus and fallopian tubes. You can then also have, obviously, 
tubal factor infertility when those tubes get scarred or ectopic pregnancy because of the scarred tubes. So that is really bad because if you don't have raging symptoms, you have to rely on people getting screened just because they are at risk. And people are not always very good at this, especially the younger demographic, which tends to be exposed to chlamydia more. This is why using condoms and protecting yourself is so important. Now, does everybody who gets chlamydia develop tubal disease? No, absolutely not. However, Of people who come to my clinic with infertility and have tubal disease is the vast majority from chlamydia, yes. Of people with a blocked fallopian tube on HSG testing, studies have shown that almost 80% of those are due to a chlamydia infection. So if you ask what's the top cause of having tubal factor infertility, let's remember tubal disease means you've got to do IVF to get pregnant. Okay, you have to. It's going to be chlamydia. Endometriosis is going to be another top cause, but if you are not getting pregnant and you have a history of chlamydia infection, my ears are perking up that potentially you have tubal factor that's not been diagnosed. Of all the people who get chlamydia, probably only about 6% will develop tubal factor infertility, right? Your fallopian tubes get so damaged, they get scarred. So does everybody who get chlamydia has infertility? No. Of people who have tubal factor infertility is the top cause chlamydia? Yes. Can you prevent yourself from getting a chlamydia infection? You can. So when we look at the world of infertility and there is so little that we can do to prevent you from coming into my office, trying to prevent you from getting a chlamydia infection, which potentially has severe outcomes, right? IVF is quite drastic. You want to protect yourself. And one final point, the younger you are when you have the infection, the increased likelihood it is that it causes infertility. That's probably due to just social factors like not getting screened or treated or knowing what is normal or not. But again, it really stresses the importance of trying to protect yourself. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. 
So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. All right, moving on to the next question. Hi, Dr. Crawford. My name is Samantha. And I wanted to know, is it a good idea to use pre-seed lubricant when trying to conceive naturally? Um, I've read mixed information online, some saying it's better to use no lube at all, but or pre-seed can help. The reason I ask is because I don't seem to have a large amount of cervical fluid near my ovulation and fertile days, um, and I'm wondering if it can help with getting pregnant and your thoughts on it. So, um, And also, I love your podcast. really is so empowering to learn about our bodies, so thank you so much for all that you do, and thank you for your podcast. Friends, Pre-Seed has done a fantastic job at marketing themselves, and we just have to admit that that is true. So Pre-Seed says fertility-friendly, and there's some ads that might make you think that it improves your fertility. Well, that's not the case, okay? But it's not necessarily bad, so let's just think about this. Using no lubricant is going to be the best. I am asking the sperm to swim out of an ejaculate, which is a thick gooey substance, which is alkaline in pH to protect it from the acidity of the vagina in order to allow it to get into the cervix and therefore swim up to the fallopian tubes where fertilization happens. Having no extra barriers, absolutely the best. However, you need to be able to have intercourse in order to get pregnant and If you have discomfort with intercourse, if things are dry and that causes you to be painful and therefore you're not having intercourse as much, absolutely that can be a barrier. So if you need lubricant to have sex, go ahead and get lubricant. And if you're going to get lubricant, we do like water-based lubricants over all your oil-based ones and saliva is bad. So Pre-Seed is a good choice if you need lubricant. It is a water-based lubricant And it has a pH that's very close to sperm or the alkaline nature of the ejaculate. Does not have the same pH as the vagina. Remember, the vagina is acidic, so the normal pH there is 3 to 5. And the normal pH of the ejaculate is going to be closer to 7 to 7.5. And And pre-seed matches that. So it is meant to not be an extra barrier for sperm to swim through, but it's still extra stuff for sperm to swim through. So if you can get away with nothing, that is best. But if you need something, water-based lubricants like Pre-Seed can very much help you. Please stay away from oil-based lubricants, things like KY Jelly, things like coconut oil, mineral oil. I do not prefer those. And please stay away from saliva because the pH of the mouth is very different. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about the corpus luteum. I know you talk about it in a lot of your videos as far as being part of the ovulation process during the luteal phase. But I am curious for those of us doing fertility treatments like myself, where I took letrozole and tried to basically induce a super ovulation. You know, I had several good follicles at my check and was curious if all of those eggs were to rupture, do all three of those follicles reform and create a corpus luteum, or is there a dominant follicle that 
ends up taking on that role to release progesterone. Anyway, just curious if you could talk a little bit about that. Thanks. Bye. Y'all, I love the corpus luteum. Love it. You're speaking my love language. So as you already stated, but just to bring everybody up to the same page, when we ovulate, what happens is you have an egg growing inside a follicle. Follicle stimulating hormone from the brain stimulates that follicle to grow. As it grows, the egg inside matures. As that egg matures, it makes estrogen. That estrogen then grows the lining of the uterus, but also triggers the brain to say, hey, we have a mature egg here once the estrogen has been high enough for 50 hours. That allows the brain to send out a single, a very high peak of LH, and this allows that follicle to rupture. So it's a cyst and it bursts and the egg is released. The cyst, the follicle reforms and now becomes a corpus luteum, and this is the luteal phase of your cycle. The corpus luteum is what makes progesterone. Nothing else makes progesterone. So the brain then is stimulating that corpus luteum to make progesterone with pulses of LH. So you get that one peak that allows you to ovulate. This starts the luteal phase and then LH is released in pulses and subsequently progesterone is released in pulses the entire luteal phase. So that means your progesterone is going to rise and fall anywhere from three to 40 nanograms throughout this entire time. There's no level that's deemed to be appropriate because it's going to be very time sensitive on when you checked it in relation to an LH pulse from the brain. That being said, if you get pregnant, HCG comes in from the pregnancy and now can stimulate that corpus luteum to make constant and increased progesterone. This is essential until the placenta can make progesterone. So the things that make progesterone, corpus luteum when you're not pregnant, and then the placenta and the corpus luteum when you are. Corpus luteum up till about nine weeks where the placenta takes over completely. The corpus luteum in the absence of a pregnancy can only live for about two weeks, meaning it just cannot make any more progesterone based on LH pulses from the brain. It dies, progesterone drops, you get a period, cycle repeats itself. When you ovulate more than one follicle, yes, you are going to make multiple corpus luteae. So now you're going to have even more progesterone production. And sometimes this is our thought process when we're talking about luteal phase defect. Remember, I think that luteal phase defect, having a short luteal phase or spotting is a reflection of a poor corpus luteum, which is on the spectrum of ovulatory dysfunction, meaning you're ovulating, but maybe that follicle is not getting to its best size. Therefore, it is not functioning as a really good corpus luteum. And if I can turn around and make you ovulate a bigger, more mature, better follicle or more of them, I'm now going to have better corpus luteum or more progesterone made. So yes, this is also why in certain cycles, we purposefully will stimulate somebody and then we have all these corpus luteum. Importantly, if you're doing a fresh IVF cycle, which is becoming more and more rare, but in a fresh IVF cycle, we destroy some of these cells because we put a needle into the follicles to grab the eggs out at the egg retrieval. When we do this, the destruction of some of these cells will result in potentially a lowering of progesterone production when they try to become corpus luteum, and you definitely need to supplement progesterone. In contrast, if you're doing a natural cycle embryo transfer, which is where you have a frozen embryo, but you're allowing the body to ovulate naturally and get to the perfect time for implantation, you're going to grow a follicle, ovulate, make natural progesterone from your corpus luteum, and you can put an embryo inside even without any supplementation. 
most of us do actually supplement with some progesterone because we are controlling. It is so important and why take the risk, but it's not incorrect to not do so. Hi there, Natalie. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. So I noticed that when I, I get these globs of egg white cervical mucus sometimes, when my LH strips are still reading low, by the time I get a rise or surge and eventually a peak, that egg white cervical mucus seems to become a little bit more scant. It moves toward more of a creamy after ovulating, um, but each month is a little bit different. My question is, is it best to try and conceive at the first sight of the egg white cervical mucus? Should I rely on the OPK test strips or a little bit of both? Sometimes it's just not ideal for us to try to conceive multiple days in a row. So if I have to kind of prioritize those days, just curious what your thoughts are on that. Thank you so much. All right. This is a really good question. And if we think back about cervical mucus and OPKs really quickly, and then I'll answer it. The cervical mucus is changing in relation to estrogen, right? And as we just said, estrogen is rising in an increasing fashion as you are getting closer to ovulation. And we know that cervical mucus can help you get pregnant because there was a study done looking at people trying to get pregnant and those who monitored their cervical mucus versus people who didn't track at all had higher chances of getting pregnant. Remember again that all methods of fertility awareness have been equal and better than nothing. So whether that's cervical mucus, OPKs, BBT, whatever your choice is. The hard thing about cervical mucus is that a lot of things can impact it. So What is normal is that that fertile mucus is egg white, stretchy, and slippery. And when it gets thicker and stickier or creamier, that is going to be your less fertile mucus. So not everybody has it right before ovulation. Sometimes you actually have to put your fingers inside and pull it out to really check for sure because you want to see what mucus is by the cervix, not necessarily what is coming out. But the other thing that's hard is There's also a lot of a water component to cervical mucus. And so certain medications or health problems or how you take care of yourself can change your cervical mucus. So a few of them might be one, of course, if you're on any type of hormones that have estrogen in them or progesterone, that's going to throw things off. So you do not use this if you have an IUD or you're on any type of fertility treatment or pills, it's going to throw things off. If you're overweight, fat cells actually make some estrogen and this can change your mucus so that it might look more fertile earlier than it actually is. Sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia or gonorrhea can change your cervical mucus. So can non-sexual infections just like bacterial vaginosis or a yeast infection. And then certain things that also change your hormone levels like PCOS, right? PCOS is a condition where you tend to have a little bit higher baseline level of estrogen. Patients with PCOS might have more days of fertile mucus and that can make it really hard to target. And then do not be cleaning, right? If you are douching or cleaning inside, that can disrupt the normal production of cervical mucus. And then we also have things like stress, diet, dehydration, potentially other chronic medications you could be on, having prior surgery on your cervix, like a cone or a leap for an abnormal pap smear, or breastfeeding, or using any type of lubricants, or even other hormonal diseases like high prolactin or thyroid can interfere with cervical mucus. So it is not perfect. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day 
because it is easy to take. And I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. If you say what is normal cervical mucus throughout the cycle, if we pretend that day 14 is when you ovulate and you have a normal 28-day cycle, right after your period ends, it should be very dry. Might be just yellow-tinged. Then as your estrogen starts rising, which is typically between days, you know, five, six, seven, starting to get a little more damp and white. Days seven, eight, nine, more like a yogurt, a little bit wet and cloudy, a bit creamy, definitely not stretchy. And then you're getting into that five day stretch where you're having your most fertile time. And this is when you're having that raw, egg white, slippery, wet. Think about it as slimy and easy for sperm to get through. And then after ovulation, it actually should change to be pretty dry. And then understanding, as we said, so many things change this. If you're going to target intercourse, remember that the five days ending on the day of ovulation are going to be the most fertile days. Egg lives 24 hours, sperm lives five days. So it sounds like you're getting some of that stretchy stuff in the days leading up to ovulation, which is okay, right? That's from the high estrogen from the maturing egg. So I would say, maybe have sex one time in that window. So once the cervical mucus changes, that sperm will stay there for a period of days. And then when you get that positive LH, have intercourse that day as well. That way you're kind of covering your bases without having intercourse every single day. And it sounds like those are going to be approximately three to four days apart for you. Now, LH testing is not perfect either, so not the question you asked, but LH testing, LH surge does cause ovulation, but LH pulses throughout the entire luteal phase, as we said. So detecting the moment of the first rise in LH is crucial in detecting ovulation time. And some people do not detect that first surge they're actually detecting later. The reason why this is difficult is that LH is typically released from the brain in the early morning hours, but it is a hormone. Hormones are released into your blood. Do you check your your blood for LH? No, you're checking your urine. So that hormone has to get in your blood, be filtered through your kidneys and result in your urine in high enough concentrations to get the test to turn positive. Things can impact this as well. Meaning maybe you drank too much water and your urine is dilute. Maybe you're checking too early in the morning and the hormone hasn't gotten into your urine yet. And then when you check in the next morning, you're getting a positive surge, but it's actually from the day before. So These things are very, very common, and this is why OPKs can also be hard. I recommend if you're using ovulation predictor kits, you use them one time per day between 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. By that time, LH will be in the urine, and so this is going to help you from missing that morning surge potentially, and then if you get that positive surge in the midday, you know that's the day you're surging, you're going to ovulate the next day, Having intercourse on both of those days would be best, but either one of them would be sufficient. That way you know you're getting sperm there when egg is available to be fertilized. Hi there, Natalie. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so thank you for everything that you do. My question today, my husband and I have been trying to conceive for just three months 
going on the 4th, actually, this week. Um, my question is, my husband has recently heard on one of his podcasts that high-intensity sports can sometimes increase the temperature of the testes. My husband does jiu-jitsu twice a week and wears a cup. He's recently stopped, but I was just curious if maybe that could be a reason for us not being successful in trying to conceive, or I guess really any high-intensity sport or activity where, you know, their body heat is going to rise. And basically, if we were to try to conceive in the same day that he would have done this sport, could that negatively impact our chances? Thank you so much, and I look forward to hearing back. All right, so sperm is very different than eggs. If we think about sperm, remember that the life cycle of a single sperm is approximately 90 days. So unlike ovaries in which a female is born with all the eggs she is ever going to have in her ovaries, they are exposed to the wear and tear of our life and eventually we run out and then we're in menopause. Testes, there's magic germ cells that make millions of new sperm every single day and one day they decide to stop working, typically at a much later age than women go into menopause. Now, sperm are very sensitive. Eggs are much stronger than sperm. And so the environment of which they are exposed to impacts how many are made, the shape of them, how they move, and how they function. And so sperm are made in the testes for approximately 72 days, and then it takes them about 18 days to get from testes into ejaculate to go on their little journey. So that means something you do one single day and have intercourse that day is very unlikely to make any impact in your chance of getting pregnant from a sperm's sake. Something you do commonly or frequently or something that happened in the prior 90 days, maybe you had a COVID infection or got really sick on what on a big bender of a bachelor party, those things actually can impact sperm production, but then will resolve when that exposure is gone and you have sperm that have grown in a new environment. The testes are in the scrotum and outside the body for a reason. It's not just to look cool. I mean, it is specifically to keep them cool, right? Because the testes need to function at a lower temperature than the core temperature of the body. And we know this. In men who have undescended testes and their testes stay inside their body, they actually fail and do not make hormones in sperm. They have to be brought down out of that heat. Otherwise, it does destroy them. So that's important to understand. So we know that high temperatures decrease testicular metabolism, result in sperm damage, and causes essentially heat stress. But how much, how long does this last for, and what does this mean when it comes to exercise is a fabulous question. For the most part, studies have pretty consistently shown that regular exercise, whatever we call regular exercise, is really not associated with reductions in sperm concentration or motility. However, high-intensity exercise or certain types of exercise can. So even HIIT training for 40 minutes two times per week was associated with a 50% reduction in concentration and motility. When we look at specific activities, cycling, probably one of the top problematic ones, and there's a lot of reasons why, right? The scrotum is compressed on the saddle. You have really tight clothing. That heat is not just from the exercise, but also the compression. And there's a level of intensity if you're doing it to a certain level and then also associated with other medications or things you might take and testicular trauma. But if we look at people who cycle more than five hours per week, we had significant reductions in sperm concentration and motility. And even those who cycle an hour and a half per week had lower concentrations than those who cycled none. 
So cycling, outdoor cycling specifically, is my least favorite. I usually tell my patients, hey, if you want a Peloton for 30 minutes a day, that's probably okay a few times per week, but you should not be going out for an hour or two hour long bike ride and expect it to have no impact on your sperm. Running also probably impacts sperm. Again, probably associated with the intensity, the distance, if you're training for a marathon or what is going on. People who ran marathons had negative associations with high intensity training and lowering sperm counts, meaning If you ran a marathon and you did HIIT work, which most people do for part of their training, you had a higher chance of having a lower sperm count and a lower motility or normal sperm. Okay, but in these studies, sperm returned to normal when this level of training was not continued. So we are concerned about things like professional athletes, and I have patients who are athletes, right? They're not going to return to normal. Like this is a lifestyle that they live. And so we have to say, hey, this is the sperm we have to work with. Of course, things like anabolic steroids or testosterone are hugely impactful on sperm as well. And some of those changes cannot be recovered. So anabolic steroids can cause what we call hypogonadism, destruction of the testicular tissue that may never be able to be fixed. You might not ever be able to make sperm again. So does exercise and the intensity and the length of training impact sperm concentrations? Yes. But being healthy is also good for sperm. And so, you know, regular exercise, I usually say is good. So I tell people, hey, this may not be the time to train for the marathon, but you know, 30 minutes a day, vary what you do. So it's not the Peloton bike or outdoor biking every single day, limit that to a couple days a week or running to a couple days a week, add in weights and other modalities to keep your body strong and healthy. That's probably going to be the best plan. And if you're concerned, one, you could make a change, but two, you could also just get a semen analysis. So you can tell your OB you want one. You can schedule with a fertility clinic. Some fertility clinics will let you just call and make an appointment for a semen analysis, even without a referral, or there's even online fertility testing sites for semen analyses. If you want to do that route, you want to look for one that's CLIA, C-L-I-A certified, then you know it's giving you really accurate results, but you can have that mailed to your house and send the sample off. So there are options if you're curious, if the level of intensity or exercise that your partner is doing is impacting sperm, let's get it checked. Hi, Natalie. My name is Megan, and my husband was recently diagnosed with 0% motility and low sperm count. And we're still trying to find answers, seeing if it's a combination of his blood pressure medications. But everything I am finding basically says there's no hope of going increasing from zero. Uh, have you ever seen any patients improve their scores from zero enough to be able to do like IUI or something. Um, Thank you so much. Bye. I am so sorry you were going through this. It can be very confusing and it can be really hard, especially to get news that potentially could be extremely impactful. This is called asthenospermia, where there is no modal sperm. Importantly, there's a couple things to know. Is this absolute, there's absolutely zero moving sperm, or is it virtual? Meaning on first look, there's not many. What this means is when you give me a sperm sample and I look under the microscope, do I see any moving sperm? The answer is going to be no in both of these questions. When I centrifuge it down and then look under a high-powered microscope, I'm getting a very concentrated sample. Is there some movement? Are there twitchers? Are there a couple sperm moving? Or is no sperm moving at all? No sperm moving at all is absolute. Virtual is there's a couple or there's something. And those actually have really big differences. So if I take patients to IVF and you have absolute asthenospermia, no movement, you only have a 10% chance of having fertilization with ICSI. 
when I take one of those non-modal sperm and put it into an egg, still there's a low chance that it'll fertilize. However, in patients with virtual, I have a 60% chance of fertilization. So those are hugely different numbers. So understanding the difference is important. Number two, okay, well, what can cause this, right? Okay, so sometimes it can be dead sperm. Dead sperm don't move. So you could have dead sperm from a really prolonged abstinence window. So if there hasn't been ejaculation in a long time, it can back up to be very dead sperm. And so that's why we would want to repeat a semen analysis after a closer ejaculation interval. Other things, you know, prior infections or current infections, you often will see other cells in the ejaculate that might show inflammation. You might do a course of antibiotics or anti-inflammatories and repeat it. Things like age, like eventually the testes do stop making. So if your partner is significantly older, that could be part of it. Testicular cancer. So if there's any masses, 100%, that needs to be known or checked out. Exposure to certain toxins, especially drugs like chronic marijuana use, that can actually decrease sperm production or change how the testes are made. Things like anabolic steroids, as we said before, can damage the testes so they don't produce moving sperm anymore. And then also things such as genetic diseases, such as something called Cartagener syndrome. And this is where your cilia don't work. So things can't move because cilia is important and having sperm move. And if you don't have the protein that's important in that, then you're not going to have modal sperm. That's also really important just to talk about the conditions of the sample. You know, was it taken within the appropriate time from when you dropped it off? Did it sit in the car for a long time? Did it sit in the fridge? Was there spermicide use or some type of lubricant? Those things can actually really impact what we see from the sperm as well. So I would always say, hey, I want to repeat this. I want to centrifuge it down. I know if I have absolute or virtual, I want to get somebody evaluated by a urologist who specializes in this to make sure there's no signs of testicular damage, infection, mass, something that could be contributing. And then ultimately what we're trying to decide is, is doing a sperm extraction test, going in to extract the sperm, going to give us a high enough quality of sperm to do IVF with ICSI. Potentially, if this was situational, like a really prolonged abstinence interval or something about the collection of the sample to dropping it off that caused this, then yes, maybe it will be normal or improved and you can do IUI. But in the vast majority of these causes, having no sperm moving is a very big deal and we need to start preparing for IVF with ICSI or donor sperm if we're not wanting to do IVF. So that's hard news. All right, y'all, I really love sharing all of these questions do you like these episodes? Should we do them more frequently than every quarter? You definitely leave a lot of voicemails, so we could do them every month. Let us know what you like and what we should do here. These particular questions are left on the voicemail. So if you have your own question, this is a great way to get them answered. You can call 657-229-3672. That is the voicemail phone number, and that's going to allow us to hear your question and answer it. Also, Every week in other episodes, I typically answer for fertility sake, our weekly Q&A segment. You can leave your fertility questions on my Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every Monday. Some of those questions will be answered on Instagram, some of them here on the weekly podcast, and some of them in that newsletter. Again, the newsletter is where you will find fertility in the news. NatalieCrawfordMD.com slash newsletter will get you signed up for that. Thank you all for submitting all of these questions and keep them coming. I appreciate you so much. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. 
I hope you learned something new and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.